scripture reading today is from Acts 23. Continuing our study of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is uh, in Jerusalem. A great mob is has beaten him and wants to destroy him. He has been rescued by a tribune and he turns on the steps of the barracks there as he's being ushered into safety and arrest. He testifies to Christ to the crowd and that makes them even more upset. And so he is there in custody of the tribune under lock and key and we read these words from God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That's nine o'clock in the evening. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, 
they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to hear your word. Lord, help me to preach your word. Pray that it would mold and change us, and shape us into the image of Christ. May we come to a deeper understanding of the Christian life. May we rejoice in you and what you've done for your people and what you're doing for your people, what you will do for your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Living in the shadow of uh, casinos here in Biloxi, uh, we hear a lot about luck and fortune. As people try to win a fortune at the casinos, we see it on billboards and advertisements all over town across the Gulf Coast. But as Christians, we know that there is no such thing as luck or chance or fortune. Karma does not exist. Nothing occurs by happenstance. None of these are Christian concepts. On the contrary, as Christians, we believe in something called God's providence. And what is God's providence? I've given you uh, on the little half sheet of paper uh, some of our historic confessions and catechisms and, and their definition of this idea of providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures in all their actions. God is in control of everything. And then the Heidelberg Catechism, which is so warm and pastoral. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now, when you're armed with the assurance that God is your loving Heavenly Father, you can understand that what Romans 8.28 says is true, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And Paul also tells us in Ephesians that, that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. He has a purpose, and He's, and he's working out that purpose in the lives of his people, uh, in, in history, and in the ultimate destiny uh, of the entire universe. He's got a plan, he's got a purpose, and everything is tending towards that. With great assurance of his love, God's love, great confidence that our lives are in his hands no matter what the circumstances. That's what we experience. Because he controls every circumstance of our lives. And I like how, again, question 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism expresses this. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? 
we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. What a great statement that is. And again, just one more. The Belgic Confession. Talking about the providence of God, it says, This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort. Since it, since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under His control, so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that He holds and checks the devils, and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. It's a little consolation for bald people who have no hair. But God is in control of everything, and, and he governs everything according to his purposes and his will. And the passage before us just illustrates that. As we see this very thing uh, shown and demonstrated to us in the example of Paul. In verse 11... The Lord appears to Paul and reassures him. He says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And this is an extraordinary uh, event in Paul's life and one that would have been supremely helpful to him uh, as he goes into the circumstances in which, he, uh, which he's in already, but which will continue to happen to him as he heads towards Rome, which will take us to the end of the book of Acts. We have seen in previous chapters how Paul was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew that imprisonment awaited him there. And his friends knew this as well. It was revealed by prophecy that this was going to happen to him. His friends tried to talk him out of it, because they too knew of these dangers that awaited him there. But Paul goes... He goes to Jerusalem. And I wonder if Paul was anticipating a better response to the testimony that he gives. You know, maybe he thought, you know, I'm gonna, I may have to go to prison for it, but I'll proclaim Christ there, and surely many people will come to know the Lord through my testimony, my faithful testimony there. But what, <laughs> what kind of testimony does he give? I mean, he barely is able to give a testimony because people want to tear him limb from limb. I mean, he's standing on the barracks as the mob is after him, and they've already started beating him, and he, and he shares about how his life has been changed by Christ. And now he is on a mission from God. You know, he probably thought that he would have better results than, than have 40 people uh, bind themselves by oath to assassinate him. And then once they hear the testimony that he gives, the crowd even gets angrier. So I am sure that Paul appreciated and needed for the Lord to give them, him this extraordinary assurance, this appearance. Take courage. Take courage. You know, you have testified uh, about the facts, to the facts about me here in Jerusalem. So that's an approval of what he's done, even though there doesn't seem to be anything but ire raised. He's been faithful to do that, and, and God is pleased with that. 
so also you will testify in Rome, the same manner. See, what that tells Paul is that the Lord is going to preserve his life and get him to Rome so that he can proclaim Jesus Christ there. He, he is assured of that, and this is actually, as I said, going to take up the rest of the book of Acts. And in fact, it will take several years for him to get through there. We've got a few more years in the last four or five chapters of Acts. But it's all about him getting to Rome and being in prison the entire time. But we know that the Lord will preserve him. And Paul has this assurance from the Lord. And because he has this assurance from the Lord, he is able to bear with these very difficult circumstances under the trials he's going to be facing. He's able to do so with grace. God will protect him because God and, and, and God has everything under control. Paul knows that and he doesn't have to panic. He doesn't have to question himself. He just has to be faithful to the Lord. The rest of the chapter bears this out, how God is protecting him. Now despite all the numerous plots and efforts to have Paul killed, the Lord's going to keep Paul alive until he gets to Rome. So this passage about Paul's escape from these would-be assassins is, is not a record of a series of fortunate coincidences, but rather it's an account of, of God's providential control of all the circumstances of history so as to infallibly work out his own purposes. See, Luke is showing us something here. He's showing us Jesus' guarantee right before Paul's escape so we can't miss the hand of God in all the events. You know, the account tells us of these 40-plus men who vowed to assassinate Paul. And it just so happened that Paul's nephew hears of their plot. What luck! What fortune! <laughs> what are the chances? No, it's none of that. It's no luck. It's no good fortune. No, it's God's providential care of Paul. God's purposes that cannot be thwarted. It was God's providence who put Paul's nephew in the right place at the right time to find out about this plot. It was in God's providence to, to turn the heart of the tribune to treat Paul with justice. You see, he's, he's not an entirely scrupulous person because when you read the letter that he's written to Felix the governor, you know, he shades the truth a little bit in his favor. You know, I discovered this guy being beaten by the Jews, so I rushed to his rescue. No, he wasn't even aware of it. Somebody came and got him. You know, and he was about to have Paul flogged to beat the truth out of him, to find out what it was that the, everybody was upset with him about. But, oh, he's a Roman citizen, so I'm going to protect him. That's what he said. So, you know, he, he wasn't the most honest person, but he did have a sense of justice. God was in control of his heart. It was in God's providence to send him out of Jerusalem send Paul out of Jerusalem with an entire, basically an entire army surrounding him. I mean, what a, what a picture of God's protection. They hear these 40-some-odd assassins after him, but the Lord provides 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to surround him and usher him out of Jerusalem. See, God's serious about his purposes, and Paul's like, well, I guess he is. You know, with, a, with 470 people protecting me. That's amazing. Now what's true of Paul here in his life as he serves the Lord is true of every believer in Christ. 
Your loving Heavenly Father has a purpose for you. And nothing can thwart that purpose. Now, unlike Paul, we often don't know the exact details of the purpose of God. We can know in general terms for sure. We know what, that God has good purposes for us. And even when things are bad or difficult, we know they serve his good purposes for us. Now, the question is, do you see that in the difficulties of your life? You know, it's one thing to throw out the theology here, and we can all say, yes, that's true, but when the rubber meets the road and, and the trials come and the difficulties uh, rain down upon us, you know, are we in those moments resting in God's sovereign hand? Are we patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity, as the catechism says? Or does it feel like your life is completely out of control? I think a lot of people long for control in their lives. And to some people it's a real idol to have control of every situation and everybody in their lives. It's wearisome because you can't, there's very little that, it, that we can control in our lives. You know, hardly anything about your life is under your control. You didn't control who your parents were. You didn't control when you were born. You didn't control what they named you. They, you, didn't, you didn't control the circumstances of your life. There's very, very, very little that you actually control. And sometimes when things are difficult, we feel like no one's in control. But that's not Christian thinking because God is always in control of everything. Do you have a firm confidence in your faithful God and Father in the midst of the trials of life? Now I suspect that many of us here struggle to remain confident in the Lord through our difficult circumstances. I believe that that's true of most people, even in the church. And I believe that the main reason is that we lack the assurance of God's favor and love. See, Paul had this extraordinary experience, this extraordinary appearance of the Lord to give him assurance, to, to encourage him, to carry him through his extraordinary trials with confidence in God. But we don't, you know, very few people, if anyone, has God appear personally to them, the Lord appear personally to them and say, here's what I'm doing, <laughs> here's what's going to happen to you, and I'm going to protect you through it. That would be great, but that's not the way it usually happens for us. But it doesn't mean that there is not assurance to be had. We lack assurance that God loves us, cares for us, and has a purpose for us, and we fall into thinking that we are not worthy or that we have forfeited his love. And then when difficulties come, we, we only see chaos instead of divine purposes. I've recently been reading uh, the book of Ruth. And Ruth is about Naomi uh, and her husband, who during the period of the judges, they moved to Moab, a foreign land. And they have two sons, and the two sons marry Moabite women, one of whom is Ruth. The other is Orpah. And all the men die. The husband dies, Naomi's husband dies, and the two uh, sons die. And so Naomi is left on her own, a widow with two young widows. And uh, Orpah decides to stay behind 
in Moab as Naomi says, I'm going to move back to Bethlehem, back to my hometown. Ruth vows to stay with her. And so they arrive in Bethlehem, and here's what the story says. And I think a lot of people feel like Naomi as she expresses it here. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Well, she's affirming that, that uh, God is in control of these things, certainly. But she doesn't sense that God is on her side or that God loves her or cares for her. You know, of course, we, see the, 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 we know the end of that story and it, it all turns out good. God provides for Ruth and Naomi and provides Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, to marry uh, uh, to marry Ruth and, and Naomi becomes uh, a great grandmother of King David and ultimately of Jesus Christ earthly speaking so there is a good there is good news and there is a purpose there that God has it's beyond Naomi's comprehension at this point but have you ever felt like that like Naomi like God has abandoned you or that you're not worthy of his love well like Paul the antidote to feeling this way is to enjoy the assurance of God's love and favor. As I said before, it's not common for the Lord to appear to people and communicate directly directly to them of his purposes for them like he did for the Apostle Paul. But we have basis for assurance in the Scripture. You know, any moment of the day we can pick up a Bible and we can read what's written there and hear the promises of Scripture and understand the character of God and what he's done for us in Christ. It's all written down for us. We can refer to it anytime we want. We can have it on our phones. We can use all of our technology to immerse us in God's word and all the promises that are there. Promises such as Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a good question. Sometimes we think God is against us. But he answers it this way. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? While we were sinners, Christ did this for us. We didn't have to earn it. We didn't have to deserve it. We didn't have to work for it. We didn't have to try to make God like us to send his son to us. No, he saw that we were miserable sinners and he sent his only son and gave him up for us all. And he goes on, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? See, Christ has already taken all the charges for us. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword Now, if we experience any of those things, we're not going to be too happy about it, generally. But if we understand that God loves us and we're under his fatherly care, even famine, sword, nakedness, persecution, we can have confidence in God that he's going to carry us through these things. He goes on, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
That's a strong, strong statement of God's love for his people in Christ. And the most important thing in order to gain assurance is to turn to Christ. Uh, If you want to know God's fatherly care, the only way to have that fatherly care is to be found in Christ, is to turn to Christ. You can't save yourself. You need a Savior. And Christ has done all the work for you. And he will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you and wash you and change you. He will do it all. Just come to him. Recognize your need and come to him. Pray to him and say, Lord, I I can't do it. I'm a failure. I'm a sinner. I need your redemption. I need your forgiveness. I need you to do the work uh, in me. And if you've done that, you can be assured that Christ will forgive you and will cleanse you and will welcome you in to his family. But even as Christians, we can fall into a lack of assurance of our salvation. There are many reasons. We can fail to self-examine. You know, we can fail to look at ourselves and reflect upon our lives. You know, the Bible tells us that we should examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Test yourselves. And that just requires us to, to look at our own selves and the sinful habits maybe that we've fallen into. The besetting sins that we, you know, we kind of ignore, the things that we sweep under the rug, or, or things that we love and no one else knows about that are sinful things. We need to stop and spend some time reflecting on that and asking the Lord to forgive and cleanse us and change us. So examination and repentance. Um, if we are not continuing to repent and continue to come back to the Lord, we will certainly lack assurance. Sometimes Christians can become lazy and careless in their duties. I mean, we go to church less or you know, not as uh, diligent to, to be, participate in the means of grace, reading our scriptures, spending time in prayer. And that can lead to a lack of assurance. Things aren't right between us and the Lord. Sometimes we can just fall in, in love with the things of this world. We love things of this world more than we love Christ. And it draws us away from the Lord. Cherishing sin and things like that. The Bible tells us, Peter tells us in his second letter, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm it. You know, make it sure. And that, that does come through examination and repentance, looking at your life. Uh, repenting of, of sins, clearing the conscience, spending time in the Word and in prayer, attending church with the people of God, you know, seeking to grow in grace by participating in Bible studies with other Christians, seeking to grow not just in knowledge about Scripture, but knowledge and love for Christ. To look to Him, not just to, Lord, I want to uh, see you know, a bunch of activity in my life, No, you want to pursue Christ, not just a bunch of religious activities, but to look to him and to love him. And and then, really, living out your Christianity is a great way to gain assurance. If you do things that Christians do, then you'll say, hey, you know, I am a Christian. Look at at the, you know, there's fruit being born in my life. There's many ways. I'll commend a book to you. Uh, Heaven on Earth by a Puritan, Thomas Brooks. It's the, about the easiest Puritan that you could read. 
In fact, you could just read the table of contents. He breaks it down in such bite-sized things. You can read the table of contents and it will bless your heart because he tells all about assurance of salvation and what it means to be a Christian and walk with the Lord. When we walk closely with the Lord in the light of his love, when we're enjoying that and enjoying the Lord, we can say with Joseph in our difficulties, you know, as he looked at his brothers who had tried to, you know, sold him into slavery and did so many awful things to him and all the difficult circumstances he went through. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He knew the Lord. He knew God's favor. And he saw it borne out in his life. If we trust the Lord, we will see it added as well. doesn't mean we won't go through difficult circumstances. Paul went through difficult circumstances. Joseph went through difficult circumstances. Everybody in the Bible went through difficult circumstances. It was all according to the purpose of God. And they all... Uh, they all rejoiced in the end of what the Lord was doing, and what, he, what he accomplished. And then one day we know, because all of history is, is heading to a, to a place where God restores all things, the new heavens and new earth. History is heading in that direction. And it's all, all the purposes in our individual lives are, are part of that bigger purpose. And one day there will be no more suffering or sword or difficulties or trials or tribulations there in the new heavens and new earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it is to us today that you are in control of all circumstances. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to examine ourselves and to walk closely with you. Forgive us for our many sins, Lord, and help us to know uh, just what it means to confess our sins knowing that you will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that great promise in all of your, all the promises of your, of your word. And we pray also that we would heed its warnings. We would walk in the light of your, your word and know that that is, in essence, walking in the light of your love because your commandments are not burdensome, but they are in our best interests. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final